This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine. And today we're discussing our latest interactive poetry feature. When our feature poet, Robin Costa-Lewis, discovered a trove of photographs under her late grandmother's bed, she recognized them not only as a document of her family's history during the Great Migration, but also a testament to black intimacy and ingenuity across generations. From studio portraits to snapshots, tin types to Polaroids, these pictures provide the foundation of Robin's new book to the realization of perfect helplessness excerpts from which we published on NewYorker.com. Robin Costa-Lewis formerly served as Poet Laureate of Los Angeles, and her debut collection, Voyage of the Sable Venus, won the 2015 National Book Award for Poetry. Robin, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here with you. Me too. It's so good to see you. We often joke that we're cousins because uh, our families are from the same part of Louisiana. Yeah. And... Um, I think that's such a center in this book. Uh, tell us about your sense of Louisiana uh, before we hear a little bit of this new extraordinary work. Now, that's a question I didn't see coming. Thank you for asking. Tell you about Louisiana. That would take... <laughs> yes, the short version. Not the, have, not the long you know. Louisiana version. <laughs> this is the New Yorker, you know, four-minute version. version. Let me just try to figure this out. Um, Louisiana, for me, is a very singular place on the globe. And uh, the Mississippi River, geographically, of course, is one of the most significant tributaries on the planet. And so before we even get to human beings, you know, (laughs) evolving and migrating into uh, the Americas, that place was already very special geographically. And so uh, to be born to a family on both sides that hailed from there, you're raised in a certain way, at least I was, to know that there was something singular about where we come from. Uh, And most people, when they think about Louisiana and they hear Black people talking about and praising Louisiana, they think that we mean because of all the race mixing. But that's not at all what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, as I said, the first um, major indigenous, like amazing um, 
communities, burial practices, farming practices. I've been reading about Louisiana for probably 40 years now. I mean, histories. So, you know, I can't believe you asked me that question. No one's ever asked me this question. So I'm bubbling up with information that I've never gotten the chance to talk about. And that is something that is special, I think, about Louisiana, that you sure. have all of these different races passing in every direction, you know, making families in every direction. And and for the time, that was extraordinary. But what's extraordinary to me about it and what I'm grateful for as a person who descends from those lines is that I think early on, I learned that humanity was um, incredibly malleable and porous, not because of mm. the racial thing, but because of the behaviors that took place in order for those things to happen. It's also a side of one of the largest slave revolts, which people forget about all the time, the German uprising. It's also the site of where Black photography early on had some of its first experiments and daguerreotypes. I mean, the, the orchestras. I mean, I could just go on and on and on. The right. remarkable economies, the shipping industries, the ports. I mean, not to mention the language and the food. Well, we haven't even got there. The Lewis and Clark Trail, right, began there. So the exploration of the second half of the United States began there, right? Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, exactly what you just said, you know, you had all of these enslaved people figuring out how to navigate a landscape and three, sometimes four languages, including their own indigenous sure. languages, sure. all at the same time. And so it's a remarkable testament to uh, humanity's ability to, you know, we talk about code switching now, but we have nothing on those people. Nothing. Fascinating. Well said. Yeah. I mean, and I, I think you're talking about tributaries in the biggest sense. And I think we're oh, going sure. to get into some of your tributaries, which are here. Mm -hmm. But also, I want to hear you read uh, some excerpts from the book that we've published in The New Yorker. So here's Robin Costa-Lewis reading from To the Realization of Perfect Helplessness. To the Realization of Perfect Helplessness. Lately, every morning, after a night of lucid insomnia, my first thought is always the same. 14 billion years. Our planet began 14 billion years ago. I just lie there thinking. Then I move slowly forward, millennium by millennium, trying to see everything that has taken place until I arrive at the present moment, me lying in my bed. Lately, I think about all of the other humans now extinct whose DNA spirals inside of our own DNA. Then I remember that we will one day soon be extinct too. 14 billion years. I'm terrified by the idea of my own death, but my cells scoff at the idea of four paltry centuries. Sometimes, instead of going forward, I try to go farther back between 14 billion years. I tried 15 billion, 16 billion, 60 billion, long before our planet was ever created. Sometimes a small girl in me wonders if all of our universes are a roux roiling inside a large stone cauldron 
inside the warm midnight blue kitchen of the infinite black sorceress, alive inside my cells. I have been thinking about you again today, as I do so often think of you, wondering if people can see the sky of our childhood the way we still see the sky whenever we think of each other. Well, not see, but feel, the way every feeling has a trillion eyes. That was Robin Cost Lewis reading from To the Realization of Perfect Helplessness. Getting shivers. <laughs> um, I want to get into that phrase, which is just so powerful. But I also heard so much in that, uh, the billions you're talking about, and it really reminds us that this book of yours is really an epic project. I know it's 25 years in the making, more really <laughs> if you consider the making of the pictures and the lives that made them. And so it combines poetry with these beautiful found photographs. There's a section-long poem about the explorer Matthew Henson. There are erasures of writings by Henry David Thoreau and James Baldwin. And so this result that you have of these erasures and these found pieces is really astonishing at once deeply personal and, as you can hear in that excerpt, nearly cosmic in scale. And I, whenever I think of cosmos, I think of Zora Neale Hurston and her notion of her being this cosmic Zora. I love that. Can you tell us about yes. this cosmicness, this whole process? How did the work come together for you? Well, I think because uh, I went to divinity school uh, at Harvard, and I'm relatively well read in comparative scriptures and mythology and been fascinated with mythology all my life. Um, I think that's a very Louisiana thing, right? With folk tales and all these Pequa stories, you know, that, you know, what does it mean when it rains and it's sunshine? You know, the devil's beating his wife. Those things just fascinated me. I've always been completely entranced with how Black people worldwide use language and use metaphor. And the most common everyday speech is just extraordinary. And so it, it made sense to me that I ended up at the Divinity School studying comparative mythology. Um, and I've already forgotten your question. What was it about? <laughs> what did you say about cosmology? <laughs> well, I was asking a couple questions probably. Um, one is about sort of the cosmic nature of it, but maybe we can bracket that for a moment because I want to understand the process just of finding these photographs. I know our, our listeners, our readers, our audience would love to know what happened. How did it happen for you in just a basic sense? Um, and I know you, you. It wasn't like an accident. It felt like a gift, I m must imagine. <laughs> Well, if I tell the truth, then people will realize one more thing about Louisiana, which is that some of us hear voices. <laughs> and uh, it was a very bizarre story. My grandmother had passed away and she had been in a assisted living facility for many years. She died at Al of Alzheimer's. And I was teaching on the East Coast. And by the time I got on the plane the next morning and got home, her house had already been cleaned out because she hadn't been there for many years. But then because she died, the family had really cleaned it out. And I was devastated because I'm a very sentimental human being. As my sister tells me, I will always keep the seashell. I will always keep the thread from a collar, always. And so I was really devastated. Uh, but there were her bobbins, because she was an extraordinary seamstress. There were her bobbins, her knitting needles, and a few coats. And I just sat on the bed crying. And then this intuitive voice said, look under the bed. And I was 
enraged because I was like, I don't have time for no voices right now. Like, could you please not do this to me right now? Intuition. And it was very persistent. Look under the bed. And I was sobbing because my grandmother and I were very close. And finally, I got down on my hands and knees and looked under the bed and there was a suitcase and I pulled it out. And it contained hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of antique photographs, incredible Polaroids, colored Polaroids as well. Technicolor, just dreamboat photographs. Amazing. Um, yeah. Well, what's really amazing is the house was scheduled to be raised very shortly thereafter because the church next door had bought it. Sure. So, you know, it was just the luck of, I don't know, I don't know what to call this project, but it was very, very lucky because no one else went in the house after me. Um, what I thought right away is this is very special. I knew that for sure. I had been studying with Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham, the great historian of African-American religion. So I knew that they were special, but I hadn't even begun my own studies in visual culture at all. I just knew that they were very, very special. And I called my aunt and told her what had happened. And she said, well, write a book. Amazing. And it was just the strangest thing because my aunt has never said anything like that to me. <laughs> Amazing. And all I knew for sure is that I was way too young. I was maybe 30, 31, 32, I don't know. All I knew was that I felt too immature and that I was way too young to understand what I had just discovered. And so the last 25 years, it really hasn't been about the writing, although I've probably thrown away about 20,000 pages. It was more about my training. I needed to do a PhD in poetry and visual studies with the emphasis on the history of photography and particularly the history of black photography so that I can understand what I was holding in my hand, right? Like why this paper, why this right, right. tent, why this, why is this silver here on the paper, that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm as obsessed with the materiality of the photographs and the history behind uh, the technology of photography uh, as I am with the images themselves, because I think that history is our history. Absolutely. You know? Sure. So they spoke to you, though, in some way. I mean, you're talking about voices that led you to them. Did you feel like they led to voices as well? Well, I can say a lot about that. I'll start with saying that I don't believe that human beings are so easily known. And I feel like one of the things Claudia Rankin and I used to talk about a great deal is that I, I appreciate Claudia's work so much. She's such a profoundly brilliant thinker and writer, but her project appears to be about the outside world, what's going on outside between human beings. And I'm much more fascinated with, by what's going on inside the privacy of our lives so that you can turn over. I always tell Claudia, you know, you, you, we talk about the strangers outside, but there's strangers in our bed. And sometimes, you know, we roll over to find our wife and she has become a stranger. Even worse, we go to the mirror to brush our teeth and we look in the mirror and the person in the mirror is a stranger. So I don't, I, I'm from a different camp about knowability and human beings. And so what I thought most of all, when I saw these photographs was I know and was raised by probably half of the people in the, in, in the photographs. And what I know for sure is I did not know them. I was mm. loved deeply by them. But I was a child, so I couldn't even begin to have mm -hmm. the kinds of conversations I could have with them now if they were alive. And I that's what I that's what keeps me up at night when I look at this book. You know, I'm upset that I wasn't old enough yet 
or mature enough yet to ask the right questions. Because I started early on, even before I saw the photographs ever, I've always wanted to take oral histories of older people. Sure. I'm, a, I'm, I'm always a person with the old people. I'm always there <laughs> with a tape recorder yeah, yeah. and a notebook since I was like, I don't know, high school, 15, 16. And so I have literally probably 20 notebooks of oral Amazing. histories that I took with a lot of these people. But I still land in the camp that says, I don't know them. And if I don't know them, you don't know them either. Right? You, you can't know them. So which is why I didn't write about their lives. Because it's so easy. Nostalgia is so easy. It's such a mercurial, slippery, sentimental trap. Hmm. Right? And, and especially with images of Black people, I mean... <laughs> it's just a hornet's nest. I see. In terms of perception, how easily our culture appears to arrive at an understanding of a Black representation of a Black body. We don't know each other. And our culture is not monolithic. There sure. are so many cultures within. And I'm just talking about America. A friend of mine talked about how in LA, there's so many Black cultures from town to town or my cousin, Arthur Lewis, the great art collector, talks about how the gumbo on the West Bank and the gumbo on the Fourth Ward are two totally different gumbos, right? Sure. And we talk about each other's gumbos not tasting right. <laughs> part of that is just teasing, but part right, of it right. is true, sure, right? Sure. And so the kind of ways in which we erase Black representation by believing we understand it. Yeah. That's an erasure. Understanding is erasure. I want to stay in the camp of mystery. I want to stay in the I don't know. And so I look at pictures of my grandmother that are in this book and I go, I didn't know her. I knew her as a grandmother. Let me put it that way. Yes. But I did not know her as a woman. I do remember once coming home from college and feeling so excited. Graduate school, my first graduate degree at Harvard, coming home. I had taken a class on social histories and social movements. And so it was all about, you know, revolutions and things. And, and I had never studied the Great Depression that way. And I said, Grandma, you lived through the Great Depression? And she looked at me like I was an idiot and said, of course, I did live the Great Depression. I was like, how did you all survive? Right. And she said, oh, girl. That's I went, right. Oh, girl, what? Oh, girl, what? That's right. And That's what they said, won't tell and you. she said, we were never hungry because we had our gardens in the backyard. She said, we never relied on anyone for our food other than each other. And if anybody needed anything, we just bartered. And sure. so we never were hungry throughout the entire Great Depression. I, and also, okay, Louisiana is one of the most fertile places on That's the planet. Right. I mean, you can have <laughs> you can have corn growing out of your forehead after a day, <laughs> sure. right? So I'm still kind of figuring it out. I don't know if I'm answering your question, Kevin. I hope I am. I think what you're answering is making clear that the book, I would say, is cosmic not just because it's considering outer space or or the billions of years, but really <laughs> considering how cosmic I think that culture is and how complete um, those kinds of same survivals that my family went through, but also that kind of mystery you're making clear, which I think also contributes to some of that tone in the poem, which is so beautiful. It's a book to me about wonder, but also about wondering, um, but it's also about wandering. You have this great migration. Exactly. How do you try to capture that great migration? Um, how do you think about it? But also, how do you write about it specifically? I'm so grateful for these questions, Kevin. Thank you. Um, well, human beings move. 
you know, we, we tell ourselves that home is a stable thing. But if you really look at human history throughout time, what human beings have done most of all is move. We migrate. I mean, early on, I'm talking, and I hope you understand what I'm talking about is 150,000, 200,000 years ago, right? We've always moved. And so when uh, I started studying the Great Migration, I always used to always laugh at myself because I was like, is this an extension of what we've been doing for 200,000 years, right? And then I began to take that conceit seriously. And I started doing very serious research for about six years on the evolution of human beings. And then I got even more proud than I already was, right? And really seriously thinking about ooh, just early human life and the bravery and the what the imagination um, must have required of that history and those movements all that how people spread out really from South Africa all around the globe. Um, and when you take that seriously, I'm obsessed with a piece of art in a cave in South Africa in the Blobos Cave um, 70,000 years ago. It's a piece of art on a piece of stone. We never hear about it because it's in South Africa, not Lesko, right? And so, you know, in Western culture, we locate Western art in Europe because of the early cave paintings that they found there. But since those discoveries, they've discovered more, you know, sure. cave artwork all over the globe, but in places that don't um, support the idea that art began in the Western mind. So that just intrigued me. And, 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 and as a person who left home, uh, as an outlier, and all my friends are outliers and all the artists I admire are left home and all of that. I just really started thinking about people who leave, right? And Matthew Henson, thank you for bringing him up. I'm still obsessed with him. The great Arctic explorer uh, left home when he was 11 years old and, and then was on a ship to uh, China. He lied about his age and he was on those ships for the next, I don't know, 30 years, right? Eventually taking him, you know, he carried Commander Perry to the North Pole. Don't get me started. I could talk about the North Pole and the history of the North Pole expedition as much as I could talk <laughs> about Louisiana. But I just want to say there's more than enough evidence to suggest that uh, it was actually uh, Matthew Henson who discovered the pole oh, and sure. not Commander Perry and three other Inuit men. Absolutely. And, you know, the idea of discovery, discover, I mean, all these have problematic uh, thoughts if Absolutely. we think of it in, in some terms. It was discovered by someone whose name we may not know. Um, but in the modern world, I think you're absolutely right to point this out. Right. But, well, the history of ex expeditions, voyages, <laughs> yeah, yeah. voyage of the Sable Venus and other things, right? All of these expeditions and voyages, you know, they're deeply, deeply problematic and complicated. Sure. But that carrying, you know, I think about you carrying the suitcase, you as an explorer in a different sense, in a private sense. Uh, and I want to talk about the art in the Western mind, but I want to get a sense from you of just, you know, did you feel like you were undergoing a different kind of migration or redoing it? Or was it just far from that for you and just sort of uh, getting what you call maturity to be able to write these poems that you know, they're not, they're almost addresses. They're almost uh, odes. They're, 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 
not illustrations of what's already illustrated. They're counterpoints. They're musical. They're all these things we could we could say. But uh, I want to hear what you think of them. Well, you know, when I finished the book, I hadn't realized that I was experiencing it as a burden. Not the not the book, but the keeping the archive safe. That was really hard. I was young, and you know. I can't tell you how many times I moved and under the certain circumstances I had to move and all the things I've lost over the decades. But sure. somehow I kept my grandmother's archive and then an archive from Louisiana that I've also held very dear um, from the Amistad Research Center. Uh, I don't know how I kept it safe. I still marvel. I don't understand how I did it, but I did it. And the greatest burden is that these photographs are now digitized and that they're going to go into an archive. And I don't have to keep them safe anymore. And I didn't sure. realize I, I didn't realize that that was a weight. It's a weight that was a, a gorgeous weight. Sure. Don't get me wrong. It, it wasn't sure. painful. It was just, it was the only thing I, I was pretty much ever thinking about work-wise for 25 years. And sure. so I wrote Voyage as a way to cut my teeth. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember talking to all of my friends. I can't believe I didn't talk to you about it. And I said, you know, the real book is this other book that I'm too young to write. Yeah. And I have to I have to mess up and I have to go through this so I understand how to do what I want to do. And all I knew about what I wanted to do is that I wanted to interrupt time. I wanted to interrupt history. I wanted to relocate these people, our history in the grander arc of time. Four centuries have never been enough for me. They never will be. You know, I've been studying a lot about Senegalese excavations of pottery from 3,000, 6,000 years ago. That fascinates me greatly because, as you know, a lot of people from Louisiana came from Senegambia because of French colonialism, that kind of stuff. I just, this fourth century thing, just it irritates me so much because it lacks imagination. It, it truly does. And it's also brilliant. If you tell a whole group of people that their origins are only four centuries <laughs> and nothing more. You want to talk about the prison, industrial prison complex, the imprisonment of time that our culture enacts upon our psyches sure. by remaining limited to four centuries when you have histories all over the world, also in on the continent, that go back tens of thousands of years right. with artifacts to boot. And I thought it was really important to afford the people in that photograph that same vast timeline. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. You know, one person I'm haunted by, I'm haunted by many, is Brianna Taylor. You know, the ease with which our lives are taken when we are walking around with one of the most mysterious exquisite things that have ever existed on the planet and that is the human cell and we just take lives like they're nothing and yet our bodies hold such incredibly important information evolutionarily speaking and so i wanted to put that incredible exaltation onto the black bodies in these photographs not because it's a slide or it's a play or it's a metaphor that i wanted to suggest not at all but quite simply because it's true sure absolutely that comes through in the book i want to talk really quickly about voyage of the sable venus which i think touches on some of this and you've said 
was a uh, practice. I think you just said it was, uh, which yeah. and, uh, I'm sorry, but it's a symphony. You know, it's not. It's like <laughs> it's like some of it's like, oh, I practice, and I, I ended up with a symphony. So, um, but what I think it's so beautiful about it is the way that that collection centers on a found poem composed of titles of Western art objects and and sculptures and things that depict the bodies of black women going back millennia. And what I love what you've done, uh, your head note is so beautiful. It's it's a poem in and of itself where you describe the technique you had, which we don't need to go into, but you're often restoring titles that were kind of cleaned up in recent years. Or uh, I wonder about this idea of and you've kind of touched on it already, but, you know, black women and representation. Because one of the things you're doing there in Voyage is sort of showing up the limitations of language in some way. Uh, yes. And not, not to mention the artwork that wasn't very imaginative often anyway. <laughs> but then you're also in this book, uh, To the Realization of Perfect Helplessness, looking within in some way, you know, not at oh, yeah. this kind of outside, a little what you were saying before. Can you tell me about how you see these two books interacting more or how do you think about that interplay, maybe better yet, between language and image? Sure. Thank you for that. Um, Voyage was the bile inside my throat and inside everyone else's throat, right? We all walk around with those images in our minds. We've all seen them. And we don't we, we pretend like they're not there and we don't talk about them and their effects on our psyches. I mean, since I was a little kid, I think I'm pretty sure in kindergarten, if not first grade, that's when I first started having images of black people picking cotton in our textbooks and no other images. I think that's a little bit too young, but no other images of black people. Right. The only images that we were given our generation of black people were Martin Luther King's dead body people hanging from a tree, slaves picking cotton. That's it. That's what I'm saying about the four centuries. I mean, there were other things going on within those four centuries, but <laughs> we did not get those in our books. But the thing with Voyage that I found fascinating uh, once it came out is how often people wanted me to show them the images. Hmm. They just wanted me to show them these hateful, hmm. spiteful, heinous, ridiculous images. And some places when I was on book tour, you know, I would get there and they'd have a slideshow ready for me to read in front of. <laughs> wow. <laughs> first of all, that first I know. <laughs> but first of all, that's not my book's project. That's not the intention. Sure. My intention is for you to get so lost in your imagination, imagining what these images look like just based on the title so that you can understand the destabilization that all people all over the world experience when we look at these horrible, heinous images. Right. So first and foremost, I did not want to offer up more hate to be digested <laughs> sure. and consumed. That for me, I joke with friends, that for me is a kind of like clever mammification of me. I'm like, I don't want to be the mammy on stage telling people about how horrible they are. Sure. That is, I can't tell you how disinterested I am in that. Um, because that's not, that's not where my mind sleeps at night. My mind no, sleeps no. in beauty. I think right, a lot right. about beauty. And so this book is like the relationship between voyages, if there's a conversation I hope there is, it's like, well, you've been hounding me for years about images, right? And if there's any image I want you to consider, it's 
the image of these beautiful, exquisite Black people and their beautiful private Black lives, not thinking about you at all, right? There's an incredible interiority, especially in the vernacular shots, not the studio ones, but that too, right? Because we don't get to see those kind of studio photographs a lot. But just in the Polaroids and the snapshots and the photo booth images, the people who took these photographs never imagined that I'd be that a they'd have a descendant named Robin Cost Lewis talking on a screen to somebody named Kevin Young for a magazine called The New Yorker, right? Those women in those photo booths they didn't imagine that, right? That's infinitely more interesting to me than some disgusting image of a black woman hanging from a tree. Why would I want to talk about that? for another 800 pages, when I could talk about my grandmother's beautiful face and that even in the midst of American apartheid, they were experiencing profound moments of beauty. You know, it's really easy. You hear the word poet, black poet, black woman poet, grandmother photographs, and oh my God, it's like unicorns, rainbows, pastel, pillows, satin, blah, blah. I don't know where people go. But for me, and I think I had to wait for that habit of sentimentality to, that's that that's what took 25 years. I had to wait to that thing died in me so mm. that I could really look at these photographs and go, now, really now, what's going on here? I still don't pretend to know, right? but I know that this is not a book about a happy Negro. Mm -hmm. Right. Sure. It's really easy to look at photographs of black people having a good time and go, see, and that's exactly <laughs> what the media did for 100 years in the 19th century. See, it's not that bad. Slavery is not so sure. bad. Don't you see them smiling? Right. But, but what I'm hoping the reader will think is, my God, this was 1923. My God, this was 1888. My God, how? And then feel a certain reverence for the kind of heroic gesture that these people must have engaged in order to just not split their goddamn wrists every single day because they were under a system of apartheid. Sure. That's what's profound to me about these images, that they even exist. That's what's profound to me. Sure. Because one of the things you're talking about, I think, is the archive and the way that the archive survives, and the archive, I think, reveals things that sometimes the archive doesn't even know about. I'm, I'm making it at, as Absolutely. if the archive is personified, Absolutely. but having worked in them and loving them and, and yes. you know, written about the ways that we often have to see, especially with black folks, things that aren't there, you're both uncovering those things and also getting us to think about the invisibilities, let's call them, that are in the photographs themselves. Because the photo is both a testament and also a hint. Like it's there's things outside totally. of the photo. There's a frame. Totally. There's a whole life at this moment uh, is maybe frozen. Maybe it's enlivened by the photograph. Uh, and I think that's really beautiful. I wonder how you think about the archive just writ large for a moment. Yes. I love what you just said. The reason why I think I fell so madly in love with the history of photography is that you could take my dissertation, which is unpublished, um, is about one photograph. I wanted to see how deep into a photograph can one go, right? And it turns out you can go on forever, right? You can. And that was a great exercise for me to do before I wrote this book because 
it's funny that I ended up not writing about the photographs directly, but the forever for me in the photographs is that I'm trying to write about the air in the photographs, you know, the history of the air, the history of the the moment, but on a much faster timeline. Okay, the archive. What did you say? What is the archive for me? Um, <laughs> I mean, you've kind of just described it. It's like this potentiality. It's the air you're interested in and the materiality yes. you've already discussed. You, you, you know that. I think you're also interested in some of the things you've said, interiority, exaltation, beauty, intimacy, restoration. Is that what you find in the archive? Absolutely. And also, I mean, so if I am sentimental, here, here is where I find it. I'm just in deep awe that human beings, and especially Black human beings, still exist. Because people have tried to kill us and so many others so many times. And so I feel like when I'm in the archive, I'm touching bodies and I'm being allowed to see lives and a kind of wisdom, serious wisdom, that I know nothing about. I just feel profound awe. Amazing. I almost think we could end there, but I do ha- want to ask you a couple <laughs> last things. One okay. is something about form, which is I love how you have the space in the poems. And, you know, often people call that blank space white space. But here, especially because you've white text on black paper, it's actually black space. Uh, you know, I mean, is that an accident? Uh, uh, What do you think? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Do you think it was an accident, Kevin? (laughs) I'm not sure. I want. I want to. I'm just wondering. You know, no, but I I love that that has happened. You know, it also, of course, sets off the photographs in just such a way. It kind of turns them into text, and your poems into these beautiful images. I don't. You know, it's there's some kind of transposition that happens. Uh, And tell me about that. Oh my God, thank you so much for asking about craft. So first and foremost, the Black Pages were something that they were important to me from the jump because exactly what you said. So for people who don't know, poets talk a lot about white the white space of the page. And every time I hear that, of course, because you know my parents grew up in Jim Crow, you know, where segregation was a real thing. I always think about that, you know, when I hear the white space of the page as an aesthetic thing in poetry, I'm like, yeah, well, <laughs> that expression has a history that makes me uncomfortable. And so I, I've often thought about just how paper choices telegraph histories and white paper telegraphs a certain history. And that's okay, that's okay, it's fine. But I don't want us to be so unconscious of it all the time. And I also just think that black paper as black space is a very beautiful aesthetic, but it's also symbolic for the cosmos questions you were asking about earlier, Mm -hmm. right? You know, we talk about Afrofuturism thanks to the scholar Alondra Nelson, who first coined that term. But I also think about Afro timelessness, right? You know, and Afro spatiality, you know, and and space is black. I mean, that's what's so amazing. Say, for example, our colleague Tracy K. Smith's Life on Mars, that book moved me deeply in its kind of ability to think about space, literally space. And again, you know, how rarely in representations of black in black literature, black any anything film, do you have black people talking about existentialism, the cosmos, space, the Big Bang, all of that, right? But we were there too. 
<laughs> you know, if, if anyone was there, were there, we were there too, is all I'm trying to say. Not at the Big Bang, but you never know. You know, in Hinduism, right, the Big Bang was just one of hundreds, right? I mean, that's what I love about having studied ancient languages and comparative mythology. Our small history of 14,000 years doesn't mean anything in a lot of other ancient religions. It's like, okay, you guys, like, can you catch up? We're 14,000 years through a 28,000 age right now called Kali Yuga. And Kali Yuga is the last age of like 100,000 ages that came before. So, you know, I, I love playing with all of that silently in a simple paper color choice. I, I want to end by thinking about how joyful this book is. It feels like a celebration, uh, though, of course, there's grief and loss, too. But it's so much about pleasure and leisure, even mischief. I, I wonder about that song of praise that you crafted, <laughs> to, And I think mischief is an important, useful word here. Um, you also call have this helplessness, perfect helplessness. Is that a kind of joy? Absolutely. Um, okay, I'm going to try to do this quickly. First, I want to talk about the title. That's a Matthew Henson quote. And Matthew Henson uh, says this about uh, his own experience of watching a friend in the middle of their penultimate expedition um, who was hit by a boulder, a boulder the size of a car and an ice storm while they were on an Arctic expedition and dropped dead. And then he talks about this realization that he had of perfect helplessness. And I, I feel like Matthew Hinson is a figure that we should meditate upon or could meditate upon for centuries because he was stuck in white space for 23 years trying to find some safety. Um, so that's where it comes from. But I, I vacillated about the title because I thought, oh my God, it's so dark. People will never buy this book. <laughs> and then, you know, COVID hit. And the thing that I love about Henson and the thing that I love about COVID is that it forced us to reckon with our own mortality, everyone, the entire species. And it's about goddamn time is all I have to say. You know, I mean, people are losing people all over the place. You edit this extraordinary volume about grief, right? Grief is a holy and sacred thing. So yes, there is that because, you know, I for one am kind of fatigued by the toxic optimism right? Everything's going to be all right. Everything is all right. We're okay. We're living our best life. It's like, I'm not living my best life. We're in the middle of a climate collapse and there are wars everywhere and everybody just died, right? And more people are going to die and I'm going to die too. And so are you. So it's not a dark thing, you know, it's a call for an awareness that our time here is limited and that limitation is actually a great gift. And so to answer the second part of your question about joy, we better have as much fun and much joy and make as much mischief and experience as much beauty as possible. And I don't know about you, Kevin, cousin from Louisiana, but that is exactly how I was raised. My father worked as a janitor for most of my life. He got promoted to be a forklift operator in the last years, but this man worked an extraordinary amount of hours. And when he came home, you better believe that he was ready to smile, right? I mean, he had been way out in what we call the Orange Curtain, Orange County, which was Clanville, KKK for real, white supremacy reigned. I'm sure he was treated so deeply, deeply, disgustingly poorly. I just know it. And by the time he came home, he would just have all this joy for us, 
right? Part of that might have been his homecoming. Part of that might have been the ways in which he fought against white supremacy was joy and beauty. And I just, that's how I was raised. Like there was just, just this profound saturation of celebration and, and praise, as you say, you know, adoration. People were adored deeply, you know, from the, from the tiniest children to the oldest people. Okay. Well, I see that gorgeous dress you have on sister so-and-so, right? I mean, and it's, it's a real drag for me, actually, now that I'm middle-aged to walk around the world where our, our, our English lacks so many markers of affection. We're just unkind people. And, and at least to me in our language, compared to the way that I grew up. So I grew up with my mother kissing my eyebrows going, good morning, sugar pie. How are you? How did you sleep? Every single day. And so did everybody else around us. So what you're seeing is me trying to give the reader the same adoration and beauty that I was given by my ancestors. Well, no one can put it better than that. Thank you so much for this wonderful book, uh, for talking with me and for collaborating with The New Yorker on this poetry feature and for the poems. They are cosmic and uh, beautiful and all the things you wished for them. So thank you again. I'm deeply honored for this, by this, Kevin. Thank you. Robin Cost Lewis' new collection is To the Realization of Perfect Helplessness. Excerpts from the book can be found on newyorker.com. You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Ropadope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses, with help from Hannah Eisenman. Come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at the New Yorker. So join us every week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.